According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10. Okay, back up three verses to Matthew 9.35. Will be our primary text. There are parallel passages in Mark and in Luke. If you have software rather than hard copies, you could do something like that and put them all up simultaneously, looking at all three of your texts. But to be honest, the uh, parallels in Mark and in Luke are rather short. Uh, you've got uh, eight verses in Mark, in Mark 6, verses 6 through 13. You've got six verses in Luke, Luke 9, 1 through uh, 6. In Matthew, though, you've got an entire chapter. That is the entirety of chapter 10, plus four verses at the end of chapter 9 and the first verse of chapter 11 that really frames the entire uh, in, entire aspect here. And chapter 10 is a 42-verse chapter. So there's really no question as far as which of these accounts has the uh, most thorough development on this particular issue. And so as you might expect, we're going to spend the bulk of our time here in Matthew this morning. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us this morning to assemble together. And Father, uh, we do ask for your, the faithful teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding and, and Father, to bless us, to edify us with the teaching of your word as it goes forth. We claim the promise that it will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you set it. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I'm going to double check my cell phone. Glad that I did. Okay. This is episode 34 in the Galilean ministry. The 12 sat out, and uh, we'll get our first look at it here. Uh, and I guess for introductory sake, I'll grab one of the short ones. Let me grab Luke 9. And uh, you'll note that it follows at the end of Luke 8 with the uh, raising of that daughter. And he says, you know, make sure no one or tell no one what had happened and so forth. And then uh, chapter 9, he called the 12 together. The 12, notice that identifiable group of disciples. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have uh, two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that, uh, that city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So there's your short account in verses 1 through 6. Uh, Mark is quite similar, and uh, we get the fullest account in Matthew. So let's get back to Matthew 10, or the last part of Matthew 9, Matthew 9:35, and uh, we will take it from there. We're going to do a lot with this, I think, uh, in a lot of different ways, uh, not only in development of the text itself and how it fits in keeping with the, the Galilean ministry, but also noticing the, the process or the development and the training of the Twelve. In other words, that they are beyond simply being followers and students, that they are also teachers themselves and they are expected. They've been teaching up till now. It's not the first time they've ever taught. But they're teaching now in realms apart from where he is. And they're teaching, he's sending them out. And uh, they will be teaching while he actually will have a season of teaching without them uh, being around. And so we will observe a lot of detail here in things that apply to training ministries. Things that apply to teaching ministries. How do you teach teachers? And uh, if you don't let the teachers that you're teaching teach, how will they learn how to teach? Did I, say, did I say that right? If you don't let the teachers that you're teaching how to teach, if you don't let them teach, when will they ever learn? See, And so uh, we'll learn a lot here in uh, Matthew 9 and verse 35. So let's look at it. 
Uh, of course, now in the Matthew context is different because in, in Matthew there's no effort to make it sequential, and so we've really backed up a bit now to get to Matthew chapter 9. We've already covered a lot of material in chapter 11 and chapter 12, the kingdom of heaven parables from Matthew 13, uh, and so we're, we're used to Matthew jumping around, and so it's not unusual for us here. But in Matthew 9 and 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Amazing context for this, because normally we think of the harvest is, uh, is plentiful and the workers are few. Traditionally, that gets preached in an evangelism context. And that passage, or passages similar to that, really get hyped in the realm of uh, looking around and seeing how surrounded we are by unbelievers. And there's just so, we're surrounded by so many unbelievers. Goodness gracious, what a, what a prime target environment. You, you just can't miss. You know, it's like, Shooting uh, inside of a, of a inside of a barn. If you can't hit a barn, we say a person's a bad shot if he can't hit the broadside of a barn. Well, he's really a bad shot if he can't hit the broadside of a barn from inside the barn. And that's uh, that's kind of the, the the pinnacle of how bad you are in your uh, in your marksmanship. And I like to brag about that because I was always uh, highly skilled and, and practiced and trained and proficient and so forth with with small arms fire. Well. Is this an evangelism context? Is this, is this highlighting the fact that, wow, we're surrounded by so many unbelievers, you just can't help but give the gospel? Or is this an edification con, uh, context? Not so much evangelism, but rather edification in terms of teaching that's going on. And, um, and if we can identify the, the term teaching that occurs before the term preaching or proclaiming, and if we don't allow ourselves to be sidetracked by the good news of the kingdom, in other words, if we're not so trapped by the, the term gospel, that every time we read the word gospel, we're all automatically plunged into a realm where uh, evangelists are, are, are leading uh, sinners to Christ. Okay. If we can get over that and re- remember the fact that gospel is good news, that euangelizamai is to announce good news, which, yes, in a, in a witnessing context, clearly uh, could be evangelism and, and proclaiming uh, uh, salvation to unbelievers, but it's not limited to that. I can give you all kinds of good news today, and yet you're all regenerate. Does that mean I'm not evangelizing? I am evangelizing because I'm giving good news. But it's good news beyond the salvation information, and, and hopefully we're clear on that. And that will come out in the, in the focus of this. All right, so uh, the harvest is plentiful. And remember, harvest is uh, not the planting of seeds. Harvest is the reaping of a crop. Goodness gracious, if we, if we just can uh, keep from ignoring that, then maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll glean something out of this. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And so then, on the heels of that, he summons his twelve and uh, giving them the authority. And we'll get into that when we get to that chapter. So let's outline some things here. We realize that we are summarizing, once again, we are summarizing a Galilean tour. We've seen this on a number of occasions. And it's, in fact, it's kind of difficult to count how many of these tours were there. In, uh, in this span, because you can count them in different ways as you harmonize the synoptic gospels. But he was going through all the cities and villages. This is a comprehensive, thorough tour of, of, uh, Galilee, including every city and village. And, uh, you'll note his activity. He's doing this, and now he wants the opportunity to expand it. Uh, there's a correlating passage if you want to take this and relate it back to chapter 4. You can do that. But he did this a number of times throughout the Galilean ministry. Where he, would, he would do these comprehensive tours. Now he wants to expand it. He's going to be able to expand it sixfold uh, or sevenfold, depending on how you count it. He himself will continue to have a touring ministry. And then he's going to have six pairs also of disciples that are going out. The twelve being sent out two by two. So you've got six pairs plus him means that instead of one touring group now, there are seven touring uh, organizations now that are going to be uh, blanketing Galilee in, uh, in this way. 
So uh, we have the illustration of it there. His ministry was focused on teaching. The first verb that we have here in this verse in terms of his activity is teaching. I realize the first verb is going, but in terms of what he was doing while he was going, the first verb you come to there is teaching. It's a primary activity, teaching in the synagogues. Teaching in the synagogues. He's not uh, out there in the streets looking for the heathen, looking for the unbelievers. The the synagogues are where, presumably, uh, there's interest in, in teaching. There's interest in things of the Lord. There's interest in spiritual things. These are people that are showing up for teaching, see. And so that's where he begins. And he, uh, first of all, the, the focus, the ministry was focused on teaching. The ministry was oriented to the imminent kingdom. The ministry was oriented to the imminent kingdom. We've studied this in the past. We continue to notice this. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. And what have they been saying? It is interesting, though, that we don't have the phrase here, at hand. The absence of at hand. We, we've spotted this in the past. We still see the, the kingdom being taught, being proclaimed, but the, the mention of at hand is, uh, is, is actually absent from this text. And so you may want to go ahead and just cross off the word imminent there. Because it is noteworthy that the term at hand is missing. Remember, we've started to already see the transition to that point where he's preparing his disciples for his departure. It hasn't completely happened yet. It'll happen when he feeds the 5,000 and they want to make him king and he has to withdraw. And then he has to start setting his disciples away aside and saying, one year from now... <laughs> All right, one year from now, I'm going to hang on a cross, okay? We're almost to that point. We're getting close to his final year on earth. So we see its focus and we see its orientation. We should likewise be oriented to the coming kingdom. We should be oriented to the things to come. Our verse in a church age application is Second uh, Peter chapter 3. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's what we should be oriented to. If we're living in this world, we're, uh, we're pathetic, we're pitiful. We're of all men most to be pitied if we are uh, living in this life only and for this life. Ministry focused on teaching, ministry oriented to the imminent kingdom, or oriented to the kingdom. And I think I'd like to go ahead and cross off the word imminent there, because, as I say, the term at hand is not in that text. Thirdly, point C, his ministry featured signs and wonders which complemented his focus and orientation. His ministry featured signs and wonders which complemented his focus and orientation. And you can simply see the order of things that are presented here in verse 35. He was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. It was a feature, but it was not the focus and it was not the orientation. I'm trying to be very precise in the wording of these points so that we have them spelled out. See, there's people out there that claim to have a healing ministry. You know, nobody in the Bible had a healing ministry. Jesus didn't have a healing ministry. None of the apostles had a healing ministry. Now, he did perform works of healing, but he didn't have a healing ministry. He had a teaching ministry that featured healing on occasion. It complemented the message, but it wasn't a healing ministry. And I think uh, if we can keep the focus in that, in that respect, if we keep the priority in that respect, we'll go a long way in understanding what the signs and wonders were there for in the first place. We t when we talk about ministries that we have here, for example, what, what is Austin Bible Church? And, we, and we've taught the dis distinctions between gifts and ministries and effects. And, and every believer that has a gift, but then the Lord opens those doors for ministries. And what ministries will we find ourselves in? And how do we characterize those ministries? It be very important, because if we mischaracterize it, then we've lost the point in what Jesus Christ has assigned. Is this a healing ministry? No. It's a teaching ministry that featured healing incidents or signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders complemented. They weren't supposed to be distractions. They weren't supposed to take center stage. They weren't supposed to overshadow the message. But they were serving to complement and, again, to validate the credentials of, uh, of the messenger.
Also, fourthly, we should highlight that his ministry was burdened. His ministry was burdened by the shepherdless insufficiency of his generation and his society. His ministry was burdened by the shepherdless insufficiency of his generation and his society. And we see this in verses 36 and following. You know, when uh, the day before or the day that, that Pastor Jensen died, he was they were getting him prepped to go into his uh, bypass surgery. And he was talking to his kids and joking a little bit. And he said, you know, I, I may not survive the surgery. You know, I might not wake up here on earth. I may be with the Lord. And, uh, you know, they talked about that and said, well, you know, wouldn't that be neat? And, you know, who, who are you looking forward to seeing? What a stupid question. He says, well, of course, Jesus, first of all, and Dorothy, second. And then he said, third, I don't know, maybe my mom or, or somebody, you know, I don't know. You know, third and following is kind of a uh, a longer list, maybe. But first was, was Christ and second was Dorothy. And he made no secret about that. Having lived nine years as a widower and, and so forth, he was looking forward to seeing the Lord and seeing Dorothy. Anyway, they were joking about it before uh, before he went into surgery. And, of course, the jokes turned out to be reality. And then we understand that, that he didn't come out of the surgery. But the, the, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that as they were drawing the kind of the lighthearted moment to a close, uh, his, his uh, comments were he was, he was burdened. And he said, you know, I, I really don't think this is my time. And the reason why is because there's so much more to teach. There is so much more to teach. And he said, I, I don't think the Lord's done with me yet. There's more to teach. And he had that burden. And I think a lot of these men, these older men, these men that are focused on what the Lord's doing with them, develop that burden. And Christ was burdened. And, and we, get, we don't want to get depressed. And we don't want to get uh, just, you know, um, so bitter about how rotten things are out there. People get, get really down. On how godless our country is and how, you know, so, it's full of sex and violence and all kinds of, you know, worldliness. And all, well, of course it is. But rather than getting negative about all that, let's recognize that there's work to do. And let's have a heart of compassion. The, what I'm calling here the shepherdless insufficiency. That's what burdened him. He looked around. He felt compassion for them. That's an emotional word. It's like that mouthful of word I gave you a while back, splank needs am I. Here's the splank non-compassion. I'm almost certain that's what it is. But it's, it's an emotional term. And I think that uh, doctrinal believers get scared of things like that. Esplankniste, there it is. Guess what we got here? We got the, the passive of that thing I was telling you about, splank needs am I. There it is. And it was a mouthful, I gave it to you a few months ago, and it's a mouthful again today, splank needs am I. Um, the idea of bowels, to the ancient Greeks, the bowels were the seat of your, your uh, most intense passions and, and, uh, and uh, feelings and so forth. So are feelings a bad word? Is Christ somehow an emotional revolt of the soul because, uh, because he has compassion for these people? No. Never sinned, not even once, not in any thought, word, or deed. So having compassion with the divine viewpoint perspective is perfectly legitimate. In fact, if you don't have the compassion when you're supposed to, you're out of line. You should have the compassion when you're supposed to. So seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Why? We don't have to make up a reason. We're told the reason. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, remind yourselves. These aren't the godless unbelievers that are just out there roaming the streets. These are synagogue attendees. Synagogue attendees. And if I bring it now into the 21st century and draw the parallel application, is it the, is it the, the Sixth Street party crowd on a Saturday night that breaks my heart? Or is it the light and fluffy crowd on a Sunday morning? that are like sheep without a shepherd, that are showing up, presumably regenerate, presumably they love the Lord, they want to learn some things, and what are they getting? So seeing the people, which people? Remember, he's in the synagogue. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. They had teachers, they didn't have shepherds. They had scribes, they had Pharisees, they had brilliant minds, 
that uh, were scholars and and were uh, were uh, keepers of traditions. They weren't shepherds. They were because these people here were called sheep without a shepherd. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so in that context, where's the harvest? The harvest is not, uh, you know, unbelievers on the street that you're trying to lead to Christ. It's untaught believers that are hurt, that that are described here distressed and dispirited, that need shepherds and don't have them. And an opportunity to provide some teaching, some proclaiming of the kingdom, some orientation to the plan of God, we would say in our stewardship. Orientation to the plan of God. (laughs) I met a Christian man, runs a Christian bookstore, and a believer, older man, nearly 70, and and a long time, lifelong Lutheran. And we were talking, and he he said, you know, uh, he says, my church doesn't teach the rapture. And then he goes on to say, I, I've done some Bible studies on my own, and, and I'm, I'm convinced that, that, that rapture is coming up. <laughs> you know, I so said, I've done some Bible study too. I'm convinced you're right. <laughs> you know? Anyway, sweet guy, sweet wife. She was uh, something else too. In any event, these people are distressed and dispirited. They need shepherding, and they're not getting it. And this is the harvest that the Lord is speaking of. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All right, so there's the uh, context that launches us into chapter 10. That's the setting. And he's going to dispatch these 12 disciples. He's going to divide them up. He's going to send them out two by two. And he's going to send them out. So, get back to my slideshow. Jesus had large crowds that followed him, but twelve of them were special gifts from God the Father, and these were the twelve who went from disciples to apostles. They got promoted, as it were. There were large crowds that were following him, but twelve of them were special gifts from God the Father, and these twelve were the twelve who went from disciples to apostles. All right, and these are the ones that the Father gave to him. And part of the recognition of that comes not necessarily here, although we may find a, let's see, the name of the twelve apostles are these. Um, It says that he summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority. And uh, the name of the twelve apostles are these, and then they're named. And I think the place where we find them, find it most Simple to find. There is a context here where it is, but the easiest one to find it is in the high priestly prayer of John 17. Over in John 17, when he's uh, committing them to the Father, and he's committing them to the word of his grace. He knows that he's about to depart. He knows that this is the night in which he's about to be betrayed and he's going to die on the cross the next morning. And he's committing them to the Father, and he knows that these are the ones that the Father has given to him. And, uh, and that he's held them fast. That he's held them fast. Oh, I love this chapter. The um, Verse 9, I guess I'll just zero in on that. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the cosmos, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, they are disciples of Jesus Christ. They are apostles of the Lamb, but ultimately they belong to the Father. Remember, it's the Father's name from whom uh, all names are there derived. But I ask on their behalf, on, on behalf of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And then he goes on to say, uh, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Remember, the unity of believers in the church is supposed to be the equivalent of the unity of the Father and the Son within Trinity. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. See, he was a steward. They belonged to the Father. They didn't belong to him. The Father gave them to him, 
but only you know, in a stewardship capacity. They still belong to the Father. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. There's that title. It's only used here of Judas Iscariot. It's only used in Second Thessalonians of Antichrist. We mentioned that Sunday morning. None of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Anyway, so the point again, Jesus had large crowds that followed him, but 12, 12 of them were special gifts from God the Father, and these were the 12 who went from disciples to apostles, and that includes Judas. Judas became an apostle. The names of the 12 apostles are these, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, is listed there in verse 4. He had an apostleship that was then replaced by Matthias when he get over to the book of Acts. So these 12 were selected. Now, as far as the 12 are concerned, I'm not going to go a whole lot into this. I'll just remind you of some things here this morning under point 3. The 12, if you were here... Way back when we taught it in Galilean ministry number 16. Galilean ministry number 16 was the 12 apostles selected. And we gave you uh, a lot of information there on the 12. See, this thing will let me do. There we go. Ooh, I was into purple back then. And we talked about the uh, Dodecapostologues, the listing of the 12 apostles. And uh, how they were selected after a night of prayer, given their training assignments, and where it is that you can find all the detect apostologues. They even have a chart up here. This is what I'm going to hunt for. The apostles were selected to, first of all, be with him, but secondly, to be sent out. The term apostello means out, sent, as it were, sent with a commission. To preach, to cast out demons. And here's your list. Oh, yes. Every time you have one of these lists, you have a list of 12, but there are similarities in all those lists. In fact, you can break them down into, into thirds, into groups of four. And those groups of four are always the same. Even though they might be scrambled in their order, they're always the same four apostles in every third. Although the first of those is always the same. So apostle number one is always Peter. Apostle number five is always Philip. And apostle number nine is always James. Uh, that's the James the last, James the son of Alphaeus. Those are always the leaders of their third, of their group of four. Then uh, they're also referenced as apostles of the Lamb. Remember, we haven't even started the church age yet. They don't have a church age spiritual gift. They don't have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But they are apostles in the Old Testament. They are apostles in the dispensation of Israel. And they're called apostles of the Lamb. Now, they would later become, except for Judas, they would later become church age apostles. But for the moment, they are simply apostles of the Lamb in the uh, Old Testament. That is the dispensation of Israel. Later on, they're called the eleven, but as soon as Matthias uh, fills that apostleship, once again, they are known as the twelve. Oh, I didn't have the chart there. Okay. But I did. Anyway, I know we had a handout. Didn't we have a handout at that time? I put it on a piece of paper, had the diagram that was all shaded and everything. Okay. Well, then you have it. You have the list, and we'll go through uh, the issues on that there. We'll let that go for this morning, though. We've already covered it. If you're curious, go back and get the MP3s. All right. Now, what is he doing with them this time? He's sending them out and he's putting them to work. He sends the twelve into Judah and Galilee with specific power and instructions. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And uh, we're told in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, and, and their instructions then follow, and particularly they're to avoid Gentiles. We'll get into more detail on their instructions here in a moment. But he sends them out with specific power and instructions. And you have not only you have verse 1, but really the bulk of the chapter, verses 5 through 42. Uh, we already read the Luke record. The uh, Mark account is very similar here. Mark chapter 6. So they don't just jump out there and do their own thing. They have instructions. They have orders. They are there to fulfill the responsibility. 
So he was going around the villages teaching, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he gives them the instructions, largely uh, overlapping with the account that we have in, uh, in Luke. All right, what were these instructions? His commission authorized the twelve to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and sickness, even to restore physical life to the physically dead. Wow, there's some authority. <laughs> we don't, uh, you know, we give that kind of authority to our interns around here, you know. <laughs> you say, we don't have interns around here. What are you talking about? Got a phone call yesterday. We may have one this summer, and I'm looking forward to that. And that could be, uh, it could be a real treat. Um, oh, more to say about that. I don't have all the details yet, but the closer we get to that actually happening, right now it's just an idea. Um, but it's an idea with uh, with a lot of money behind it. <laughs> the man who has the idea is already uh, committed to uh, to flying the flying the man down here and and uh, and uh, supporting him throughout his stay here and all the rest. So it'll be real good to see if we can get uh, if we can get this young man to come visit us for a couple weeks over the summer. Verse 8 of this context, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. Raise the dead. Wow. And we don't have any record that they actually did that, but just consider that was the, that was the uh, flexibility they were given. That was the, uh, they were given a lot of uh, freedom, uh, freely you received, they were given a lot of discretion, a lot of freedom to do pretty much anything. In terms of casting out demons and healing people, even physical death. That's pretty much the most serious form of sickness I can think of, right? You know, what disease short of death and even death itself? Go ahead, restore their physical life. What freedom. And yet, was that what they were sent out to do? Did he launch them forward on a healing ministry? Or they were, were they sent forth on a teaching ministry? Because what was his ministry? Teaching and proclaiming. Teaching and proclaiming. I didn't talk much about the proclaiming there in verse 35. It's where we get preach. It's Caruso. It's where we get preach or proclaim and, and so forth. Today, people are all wrapped up around different churches. And some, some pastors are more preachers and some are more teachers. And they act as if somehow that's a problem, right? <laughs> well, in your teaching, you are preaching because you're proclaiming. And preaching is not a style, it's an activity. And a lot of folks would come in here and say, well, you know, the pastor doesn't preach. He just teaches, you know, he's, he's academic or whatever. And it's, it's goofy. It's a distinction in semantics when it comes right down to it. And they've got this image in their mind of what a preacher really is. All right? And it's a flawed understanding. What else are they supposed to do? Point B. His commission established their jurisdiction as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Context for this is verse 5 and verse 6 here in Matthew 10. These twelve Jesus sent after instructing them, Do not go the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach. See, it's not a healing ministry. They've got the authority to do it. Their ministries can feature that if necessary and if the occasion arises. But they're not sent out to find all the, uh, go find every sick person you can in Israel. He says, go find the lost sheep. That is, those that are dispirited, those that are depressed, those that are sheep without a shepherd. Those that, why are they lost? Because there's no shepherds. Read Ezekiel 34. See what happens when, when uh, the shepherds aren't shepherding. What happens to the sheep? They become lost. They become scattered. They become food for every beast of the field. And so they're sent to the lost sheep. Not to the sick, but to the lost. The uh, miracle power that they're supplied is, is a feature, but it is not the centrality of their message. They're told to preach in verse 7. The kingdom of heaven. And there we have the at-hand reference. What do you know? Verse 7. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely received, freely give. Now thirdly, his commission confirmed their message, the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom of heaven. The good news of the kingdom of heaven. It's at hand. 
the kingdom of heaven. We can be through with Gentile dominion over the, over the Jews. Israel, the Jewish people, have been under Gentile dominion since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. Their temple was destroyed. Their throne was vacated. They were carried away into captivity. Now, 70 years after that captivity, they were allowed to return. About 10% of them did so. All right. The vast majority of Jewish people stayed in the diaspora. They stayed in their scattered condition around the, around the world. But a remnant returned. Uh, they did rebuild a temple. It was kind of meager compared to Solomon's glory, but it was still a temple. They were permitted to rebuild a temple, and they did that. But the Davidic throne was never reseated. The Davidic throne remained vacated. It remained vacated through the uh, intertestamental period. It remained vacated through the Gospels. It remains vacated to this day. No son of David has been seated on the throne of David since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. So they've been under the uh, what the Gospel of Luke calls the times of the Gentiles ever since. And the times of the Gentiles uh, will run its course up to and including the abomination of desolation, that is the evil of Antichrist and the Great Tribulation. The times of the Gentiles will run its course until Christ returns and he will sit on David's throne and uh, and bring that to an end. And so it's described here, the Gospel of the Kingdom. Well, that's good news. The kingdom is good news. The idea of the kingdom of heaven on earth is good news. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's, that's a wonderful prayer for these Jewish believers looking for that kingdom to, to be realized. And that's the message they're uh, called to deliver. Fourthly, his commission designated the grace financial policy that they were to operate under. His commission designated the grace financial policy that they were to operate under. Remember, in the temple, they functioned under tithes. They functioned under obligations. The legal system was filled with have-tos. The support of the priesthood, the support of the Levites, the operation of the temple, and everything that took place there in terms of tithing and all of the structure of Mosaic law, all taught thoroughly throughout the Old Testament. But now here in this ministry is a grace provision. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. In other words, as far are they going to be profiting from this ministry? Are they going to make some money off their healing abilities? <laughs> Look what these guys are trying to do today. Making a name for themselves and accumulating fortunes and so forth with their cures and their uh, healing and, and all the rest. No, they're not going to get wealthy by, uh, I mean, think about it. If you can restore physical life to the physical dead, <laughs> think you can make some bucks? You know, somebody in their grief and you hit them up and say, hey, you know, your dear Aunt Sadie or your daughter, you know, Muffins or whoever and you're, you know, you want her back? What's it worth to you? They could make some serious denarius in uh, that kind of a racket. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Gold or silver or copper. That is, a whole lot of money, uh, money, or even a little bit of money. Not even a little bit of money. You're not in it for the money. Obviously, you're going to have, you're going to need support. And uh, you'll need your travel expenses, you'll need your, your, your daily food, but, but that's it. That's your operating expenses. Or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals. Now, that we have a hard time relating to because we, we have two coats or three coats or four coats. We've got a closet full of clothes in that. And uh, in the ancient world, though, that wasn't the case. In the ancient world, you would have a single set of clothes, and to have a second set of clothes would be considered extravagant, and to actually transport those that second set of clothes with you would be considered extremely extravagant, and they're not to uh, they're not to be traveling around in an extravagant manner. The worker is worthy of his support. The worker is worthy of his support. Very important principle. Of course, it comes from an Old Testament principle that applied to oxen and so forth and not muzzling the oxen. But here, uh, it's very clearly not applied to oxen. It's applied to teachers, to Bible teachers, those that are ministering the Word of God. 
and uh, and that he, it would be expected that as he's ministering in the spiritual realm, that he's going to be fed in the uh, in the earthly realm. And so as they travel from town to town, uh, that it would be expected that someone would put him up, that someone would feed him, and uh, and those details would be taken care of, whatever. Expenses would be incurred to get to the next town would be taken care of, and on they would go. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> you walk up to the city gate and say, hi, how do you doing? We're here. Glad to, glad to be in your town. Uh, who's worthy in this town? Well, in this context, and, and the idea of worthiness, worthiness, oxios, the worthiness, in other words, the scales are balanced. Uh, you've got a certain measure weight on this side, and then there's an equivalent weight on this side, so it's worthy. It's balanced. That's what worthiness is about. If it's not worthy, then you've got not enough money, and so the, the, the scales are, are tipped, and, and you're unworthy. You're anoxios, unworthy. But this is oxios, worthy. Um, the worker is worthy. Okay, The worker is worthy. That is, that of his support. That is, that those that have divine viewpoint that are oriented to the word of God going forth that have an appreciation for spiritual priorities and they recognize that earthly provision is not worthy to be compared to the spiritual fruit that's being born. So the worthiness of verse 11 has to come in the, in the uh, contrast or in the context of the worthiness of verse 10. You see that? Because the, the, the terms are right there, back to back. The worker is worthy in verse 10. Uh, in, in verse 11, inquire who is worthy. And so those verses together, immediately in their context, we, we have to put those up side by side. And the, the realm of worthiness then is, is the understanding of the, the financial support for spiritual priorities. Does that make sense? The, worther, the worker is worthy of his support. Okay? I'm seeing some puzzled faces. I'm going to keep explaining until the puzzled faces go away. The worker is worthy of his support. He's ministering spiritual fruit. He's providing treasure that's worth far above rubies. He's, uh, he's feeding in, in, in food that doesn't perish. Because earthly food, you eat and you get hungry again. But in spiritual food, you eat... I'm sorry? You're following that. Okay. Okay, so the next part. Inquire who is worthy of his support. Inquire who is worthy. In other words, who... Okay. The guy in the pulpit is worthy. The guy in the pew is also worthy. He's worthy to give money because he's giving money for the right reasons. The guy in the pew is also worthy. He's worthy of giving. And he's worthy of giving because he's oriented to grace. Now, the guy who's not worthy to give is the guy that's not oriented to grace, is the guy who thinks he's going to get something for his money. He's not even worthy of giving. He's unworthy of grace giving because he's wrapped up in his legalism. He's wrapped up in his pride. See, um, he, he thinks he's like, uh, uh, you know, in the book of Acts where he thought he could buy a spiritual gift. Thought he could buy some powers. That guy's not worthy. So inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave the city. Who would be worthy to host? Who would be worthy to, uh, to invite the, uh, these Bible teachers into their home to, to feed them dinner? And who would be unworthy to do that? Again, the standard is those that have a perspective to God's plan. Those who are oriented to grace. Those who have a, a, a perspective. They're worthy. Doing it is under the Lord. Doing it is under the Lord. For the yes. In other words, stay with people who are oriented to grace. They're the ones who are worthy. Yeah. You're worthy to receive the grace. They're also worthy to extend the grace. Yeah, let's, let's read these next couple of verses here. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Again, the worthiness. What's that going to be grounded in? Well, what's the perspective? The worker is worthy of his support. See, it's, it's that first use of worthy in verse 10 that defines verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, and all of these following issues of worthiness. Are they working? 
these guys that are hosting hospitality, they're also working because they have their work to do. They have their work to do. That's what makes their house worthy. And their house, the worthiness of their house is just like the worthiness of the apostles in their ministry. They're doing the Lord's work. And they're oriented to that. So whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, in other words, they're not oriented to divine viewpoint. They're not oriented to what God's uh, doing with these men. They're not oriented to the plan of God. Uh, shake the dust off your feet. Shake the dust off your feet. That's a fun idiom. In other words, um, you're, you're, you're not taking anything from that city. You're not taking their money. You're not taking their food. You're not taking their clothes. In fact, you're not even going to take their dust. Leave their dust there. You don't want anything, even their dust. All right? Because, why? Because they're not doing it as unto the Lord. It's like our, our, our official policy here, Austin Bible Church does not take contributions from unbelievers. We will not accept contributions from any unbeliever. So far as we understand, I mean, if it comes in anonymously, we don't know who gave it. Well, then we don't know. We ask stock questions for conscience sake. We don't know. But if an unbeliever, if we somehow come to understand that an unbeliever has provided funds, we don't accept it. Why not? Because the ministry of the word is not worthy. I don't care if it's a million dollars. It's not worthy. It's not provided by a believer under grace principles uh, providing grace giving for the glory of Jesus Christ. No unbeliever can, can, can do anything in the spiritual realm. It's not of the Holy Spirit. It's not for the glory of Jesus Christ. So any contribution coming from an unbeliever is not worthy. The ministry of the Word of God is worthy. And so shake the dust off your feet. You don't want their money. You don't want their clothes. You don't want their food. You don't even want their dust. Leave it all there. And, uh, and notice, they're not calling down fire from heaven. They're just shaking the dust off their feet and walking away. God will deal with the rest. And when you consider uh, the nature of God's wrath, when he provides a famine upon the land, a famine of teaching, when a territory is given over to a spiritual famine where there's no teaching of the word of God in a particular location, then you understand that uh, ultimately that is an application of wrath that's, in my mind, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Worse than fire and brimstone. Not only in time, but also in eternity. Verse 15 says, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You know, think about it. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah had Lot for a witness. These guys had an opportunity for apostles to minister in their midst. And they rejected them. So there's a grace financial policy. There's a lot we can develop out of that as well, and a lot that we have developed out of that, which is why, again, we have the policies that we have at Austin Bible Church. Finally, fifthly, point E, his commission included a warning of persecution and the need for shrewdness. His commission included a warning of persecution and the need for shrewdness. Verses 16 through 20. This is the sheep in the midst of wolves warning here. Behold, I send you out as, a, as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now remember, they're going to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And these lost sheep are lost for lack of a shepherd. They've been scattered. And look who they're surrounded by. If you're going to go find those lost sheep, where are they going to be? In the midst of wolves. I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to have a shrewdness. The last thing we need in the angelic conflict is a, a, a naive, uh, naiveness or naivete where we are blinded to the realities of the ugliness of, of the world in which we live. At the same time, we don't want to be so hardened by it and jaded and scarred that somehow we become hurt. And damaged. That's the second part. We're shrewd, but we're also innocent. And how does that happen? Well, <laughs> human terms is hard. That's why you got to be in prayer. And you got to ask the Father to say, keep me innocent as a devil. At the same time, uh, give me that shrewdness. Open my eyes. Let me uh, not be um, deceived and not be misled and not be 
uh, vulnerable to the to the snares that are there. And while while you're doing that, keep me from becoming so jaded myself that I don't become a serpent. I want to still remain innocent as a dove in my own soul, in my own mental attitude. It goes on to say, beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony uh, to them and to the Gentiles. Now, the, the language here has kind of shifted a little bit. Have you recognized that? Because he, he's speaking of, of what, where they are, and then he also mentions where they will be. Right now, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, and beware of men. But then in the future, here's what they will do. Not necessarily right now, but here's what you have down the road. Where they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Now, did that happen in the Gospels? Were they given to the synagogue in the Gospels? Were they scourged in the Gospels? No, in the book of Acts, they were. In the book of Acts, they were in prison. In the book of Acts, James got beheaded. In the book of Acts, they got scourged. In the book of Acts, all those things happened. And so we have an immediate commission, and then we have a, a shall we say, short-term uh, prophecy. And very quickly, it's going, to be tra- it's going to be shifted even beyond that into a long-term prophecy, a, tribu- a tribulational prophecy, which we'll get to here, uh, here in this chapter. So do you see the transition from now to you will in the future? See, I send you is present tense. This is what I'm doing right now. And beware of men is in the present tense. Beware right now. For they will hand you over. That's future. That's future. And now with hindsight, we can look back to it and we can see that it didn't happen in the Gospels. It happened in the book of Acts. And we find that there is a time transition there in verse 17. Uh, Again, in verse 18, you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Well, how's that going to happen? How are they here and now going to be in front of Gentiles when they weren't sent to the Gentiles? They were sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So clearly there is a time adjustment that happens there, a very short time adjustment that happens here. And the longer time adjustment happens in verse 21. Where we get into the brother, we'll betray brother, and we'll talk about this. I'm kind of running up at the end of the... Well, let's, let's look at it. We've got some time left. Um... Because there's another time shift in verse 21. Verse 19, but when they hand you over, when they hand you over, it's yet future, but it is coming. Do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, again, this is another clue that it's it's not in the Gospels this is going to take place. It's going to happen in the book of Acts. It's going to happen during the church age. It's going to happen once they are universally indwelled by the Holy Spirit and they're functioning in the age of, of the, uh, the dispensation of the church and the issues there. But then it comes back in verse 21 with brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Um, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now there's your complete picture. And I'm going to give it to you here in point five. The Lord's instructions for his apostles not only addresses their immediate circumstances, but prophetically looks ahead to the tribulation. These verses are tribulation verses. 21 through 23 are tribulation verses. 21 through 23 are tribulation verses. And this is common. This is absolutely common. Common in the Old Testament prophets. We're doing the book of Isaiah right now with our teen class, and they've seen this. They've seen First Advent and Second Advent in the very same verse, or back-to-back verses. They'll see lots of that throughout the book of Isaiah. Jesus Christ, likewise, he's an Old Testament prophet, remember? He's just like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. They're Old Testament prophets giving forth these messages. Of course, he's not just like them. He's the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the Christ. But, but as an Old Testament prophet, in that gift and in that office, that's what he's doing. And so it's not unusual that he, he's commissioning them, he's sending them out, he's telling them what they're going to do, what they will do, and then way down the road what's going to happen at Second Advent. 
So verses 21 through 23 being tribulational in nature. Now I've got subpoints under this to really spell it out. Brother will betray brother to death. And, and there's so much confusion here because I can't tell you how many commentaries I've read where they, uh, where, where people will look at that and they'll say, oh, brother, brother, that's gotta be church. Right? Because aren't we the brethren? Yes, that's right. We're the brethren. And, and so they take the church age terminology of brethren, they go back into the gospels and they retroactively read it into here and they say, ah, look at that. And they try to make this a church age text. And it's not. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents, causing them to be put to death. These are family relationships, not just brethren, like spiritual brethren in the body of Christ in, in, in a church age text, but in terms of earthly families, in terms of, of literal brothers and sisters, literal siblings, literal parents and children. Of, of, so we have conflict within the generation and we have extra generational conflict between parents and children, cause them to be put to death. And it's extraordinary for that uh, concept to be presented here because the, the original audience that received this, in other words, the circumstances in Jesus' day, in the ancient world, this is, this is uh, unthinkable. This is absolutely unthinkable. In the ancient world, family is everything. When, you, when you're dealing with family and clan and tribe, that's everything. To the point where the family honor is more important than your personal honor. To the point where your marriages are arranged and they're arranged for the good of the clan. And they're arranged for the good of the tribe. And there are the tribal inheritance that have to be maintained and the land grants that have to be preserved. And everything is so wrapped up in the clan and in the tribe. The idea that a world has gone insane and family no longer matters. <laughs> well, that's where we live, right? Part of the reason why some of this is so alien to us is because we don't live in the ancient world. And, and we live in a, in, a, in a nation where you can pack up your bags and move across the country and live 3,000 miles away from your parents, and, and people often do. And, uh, and, and you don't have that... Uh, uh, if... if you, when the time comes for you to get married, you don't have to go to your parents or to your grandparents and to have that marriage arranged by the clan so that the, uh, so that the business dealings will, will be appropriate for, the, for your clan's needs. See? Because there's a shortage of, um, there's a shortage of, uh, craftsmen or there's a shortage of tailors or maybe, um, uh, you've got an overabundance of one particular trade, one particular crop. Uh, a lot of your land uh, produces uh, a fair amount of corn, but you just, because of a death, you just lost a massive revenue source for, uh, for wheat. And so uh, now that you're marriageable age, your clan, uh, you know, your grandfather and his brothers have come together to say, you know what, we need more wheat property in our, in our clan. And so they start looking around at who has the wheat, and, and who has the wheat and who has the marriageable daughters? And they say, ah, okay, here you go. Your son will, will contract with their daughter, and that will bring wheat production into our clan, into our extended network of, of, of wealth. Okay? <laughs> you see how this works? And it's not just, oh, mom, I'm in love. Here's this, you know, they don't care if you're in love. What are they bringing to the dowry? What are they bringing? Oh, no, you give the dowry to her. But what is she bringing to the clan when we, when we link these two lines? Because if she's not bringing anything to the line, then you're not going to marry her. If she doesn't bring anything, contribute anything to the clan, you're not going to marry her. Or at best, we'll arrange a lesser contract and, and she can be a concubine. But your wife is going to be a valuable link that we can put some families together and, and get something productive out of this union. Okay? That's the business arrangement of, of that. And, and once we've assigned your wife to you and you marry her, you'll have integrity with her because that gives honor to the clan. You're not going to dishonor the family. You're not going to dishonor the clan. You're not going to shame the tribe. And you will learn to love that person. See? It's like Tevye and... 
fiddler on the roof, you know. And he asked, do you love me? And how, how long had they been married, you know. <laughs> and she had to think about it. And she sang the song and said, well, yeah, I guess I do. So this aspect, we'll come back to this next week, Lord willing. Uh, brother will betray brother to death. Father is child and children will rise among his parents. You know, that is would be absolutely frightening to the audience that it was spoken to because it, it is it cuts to the core of their identity and who they are and everything that has value to them in this earth. And that's going to be turned upside down. What would cause that to happen? Ultimately, it's going to be the name of Jesus Christ in the tribulation. And uh, we'll talk about that as, as well. All right. Anything that's left confusing can be brought up tonight for question and answer time. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, we just thank you most especially that we can learn these scriptures, we can glean these promises, and I pray especially that you would convict us of that which you would have us to apply as, uh, Father, you and uh, your son have seen fit to begin a training ministry here at Austin Bible Church. We want to pattern the training of the men here under principles. And now these aren't church age passages, but there are principles here that we can glean in uh, training uh, workers. And the worker is worthy of his hire. And Father, I pray as we as we train uh, all 11 gifts, but most especially the, the pastor, teacher and, and evangelist gifts, those that are going to be uh, in full time in full-time service, Father, I pray that we would equip them uh, appropriately according to the pattern you've given us here in the Scriptures. I thank you and I praise you. And I do lift up the intern possibility we may have this summer. Uh, you know the circumstances of that, and, and we're looking to you to, to bring that about. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.